Welcome to the Oregon Coast Birdcast, a podcast about the birds of the Oregon Coast. I'm your host, Paul Lask, and I'm recording from the north campus of the Oregon Coast Community College here in Lincoln City. It is September, an amazing month to bird. It is a month of change. Young birds are leaving the nest to hang around a little while before beginning migration. Different geese are arriving and winter ducks will start coming in big numbers. Canada geese, they stay here all year and they breed here, but their subspecies, the smaller cackling geese, they begin to migrate overhead in September. So listen for their higher pitched cackling sound as they fly overhead. Some will stay in the area the whole winter. Um, Other September geese are greater white fronted geese. They also migrate through, sometimes even at night. Uh, That's a romantic thing. You've got some backlit clouds by the moon and you see a V of these geese cutting through. It is quite memorable. So keep an eye up at night if you can. Uh, Some will stay in the area for the winter like those cackling geese. Uh, Waterfowl arriving in September include American Wigeon, a few Eurasia Wigeon, Greater Scop, Horned Grebes, Eared Grebes, and American Coots. Lesser Scop show up later in the month. A month that is great for looking for migrating shorebirds. Yes, September is a fine time to see both American golden plovers and Pacific golden plovers. Also look for ruddy turnstones, wandering tattlers, and barred sandpipers. Wilson snipe also return for the winter. Seasonal pelagic birds include Jaegers, skuas, bowlers, shearwaters, and lace and albatross. Uh, these birds stay far offshore. However, sooty shearwater and northern fulmer can often be seen skimming the ocean from a high vantage point. Uh, other bird things going on this month include merlins, ruby-crowned kinglets, American pipits, Lapland longspurs, fox sparrows, golden-crowned sparrows, and Townsend warblers. Leaving us are western tanagers, black-headed grosbeak, yellow warblers, hermit warblers, warbling vireos, and almost all flycatchers. Expect tropical kingbirds that can sometimes show up in late September, a month where both Swainson's thrush and hermit thrush can be seen or heard. The Swainsons are leaving the area while the similar-looking hermit thrush is arriving for the winter. Uh, A great way to find birds and places to bird is to participate in a monthly local bird walk. Information for Lincoln City Audubon can be found at uh, lincolncityaudubon.org, where you can get more information about those walks. All right. Happy birding. All right. So I'm excited today to bring on two folks from the Portland Audubon, uh, Assistant Director of Statewide Conservation, Joe Liebezeit, and Coastal Community Science Biologist, Allison Anholt. Okay. Joe, Allison, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us here. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. So I figured maybe we could talk a little bit about our background as uh, birders and how we got into nature in general. Either of you, feel free to jump in. Sure. Um, I can start uh, if that's okay, Allison. Sure. Yeah, I um, grew up in uh, suburban New Jersey, basically a suburb of New York City. And um, from a very young age, I was just very... Uh, interested in birds. I always was drawn to them when I saw them. And I remember being really young and my mom 
putting bird feed, uh, bird seeds in the bird feeder and um, just like watching them for hours, looking out the back window of my house and getting my first uh, bird guide when I was young and, um, you know, checking off the birds I saw. And my parents weren't really birders. They, I, they, were, they were very supportive, but it was just something I was drawn to from an early age. Uh, and I do remember, um, you know, noticing when there were developments in the neighborhood that, you know, there's places that I had seen certain birds that were no longer there. And so definitely started me thinking about the impact of humans on, on wildlife and particular birds. So that's my kind of early start, um, with birding. And then I went to, uh, college in the University of New Hampshire uh, and for my undergrad, and um, I did take some field marine biology courses out on these islands right off the coast of New Hampshire in Maine called the Isles of Shoals, and the island I was on was Appledore Island, this really small island about 10 or 11 miles off the coast, and um, I was taking these field marine biology courses, but at the time there was a grad student there that was doing a stopover bird uh, migration study and she was banding birds there and um, using mist nets and I volunteered helping out when I could and I was just became fascinated by migration and um, how I think I was there in the fall and these birds were kind of um, <clears throat> stopping there on this island before a lot of them would jump off and migrate across the ocean to the Caribbean and further south. So I just found that really fascinating. And that got me really interested in the kind of the science side of birding. And then, um, yeah. And then between undergrad and grad school, I did a lot of field biology jobs all around the country, um, as a, you know, itinerant field biologist (laughs) everywhere from Hawaii to New Mexico to Alabama, Doing, getting involved in different wildlife projects, mostly bird projects, yeah. and that really got me really engaged in birding and the science of birds too. Do you remember that first birding book you got when you were little? Um, I do. Rem- I don't remember the. It was not the Roger Tory Peterson. I remember that was one of the one of the ones I got soon to follow. But the first one was this obscure little book. It was very small and. Um, I don't even remember who published it, but yeah, nice. I remember getting one. Yeah. And I still have it, I think somewhere with these little scratch marks of my, uh, writing down the date I saw the birds and, you know, it dates me a little bit because some of those dates were from the late seventies and early eighties. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Yeah. But something about the, uh, migration and being out in the field really spoke to you and just being, being there watching them and. Yeah. And I, you know, growing up, uh, even though I grew up in a suburban place, I was always drawn to being outside in my backyard. I'd be looking at the bugs under rocks in the garden and I always would help my mom in the garden. And, um, I would go to the local library and get all the field guides for, not just for birds, but for everything. I got really into being kind of a naturalist in the, in the uh, suburban environment and being drawn to places in the area that were, you know, green spaces, uh, yeah. that were not really defined to be green space. Like there was a place right down the street from me behind my high school, the Hackensack river, which at the time in the seventies, um, was very polluted and it's, it's getting better now from what I hear. But, um, you know, this river that 
was polluted, but it still had, you know, habitat around the edges of it. And I would, you know, see cool birds there every once in a while during migration. I, I remember seeing my first American red start and getting really excited. Um, so, yeah, I just found the places in my neighborhood um, that um, were kind of the last remnants of wild. <laughs> yeah. We'll get into edge habitat maybe later as a, sure. as a situation for marble merlets and others, but... That's great. And Allison, what what got you into birds and maybe nature in general? Yeah, funny enough, um, New Jersey was very important in the beginning of my birding journey, too. Yeah. But I did not grow up there. I grew up here. Um, but I ended up out in New Jersey for college with a long backstory that I won't get into now. But um, I ended up in New Jersey for college, but I went to college for pre-law and I wanted Whoa. to do environmental law. Yeah. And when I graduated in 2008 in the recession, I decided that was a bad idea and I actually wanted to be outside anyway. Yep. So I went back to community college and I had a community college um, professor who taught me about the wonderful world of field biology and how to find these specific jobs within the wildlife field and how to spend your time yeah. out outdoors and working on other people's research projects to begin with. Yeah. Um, and so my very first job, I applied to almost 200 wow. all over the country. Um, you know, again, recession when not a lot of places had funding and things like that. And I had no experience. Yeah. Um, I got a call back and an interview for one and it was because I was local and he didn't have enough housing for two field techs. And he knew my community college advisor. They'd gone to grad school together. So that job was with American Oyster Catchers um, in Cape May, New Jersey. And I never looked back. I've, uh, yeah. I'm still working with oyster catchers. Uh, oh, cool. I still love coastal birds. Um, since then, I've worked all over the country with coastal birds, um, mostly in the Cape May area, but also in the Mississippi Gulf Coast after the oil spill, setting up community science surveys to set baseline data for when inevitable oil spill will happen again. Um, I went out to the Aleutian Islands in Alaska. Um, I've worked out in um, the Arctic, Arctic Canada with fisheries bycatch and kind of all over. Went back and got my master's with piping plovers and have just been in the world of research, community science, and coastal bird monitoring ever since. I've never uh, experimented with anything else. Um, but I do like, I've always been very, you know, into the outdoors and nature and try to consider myself an overall naturalist, but certainly most um, competitive and interested in birding in, in the natural world. Yeah. What do you mean competitive? Oh, I'm just a, a definite lister. I'm having ah, yeah. my best year list ever this year. Oh, good. Um, yeah, I just, I definitely will try to go out and specifically look for target birds that I haven't seen yet in a given year or a given area and uh, try my best to learn bird identification. Um, so meanwhile, it takes me multiple tries to learn plants and <laughs> insects and things. I always forget them, but birds I try to remember. No, that's great. Do you think you'll have time today to get out and look for anything or do you got to scoot back oh, to Portland? Well, I, I was just hearing a lot of crossbills out in the parking lot. We were having a hot red crossbill summer out here on the coast. They are everywhere. Awesome. <laughs> so, awesome. Yeah. Allison actually lives in Tillamook. Yes. Oh, yeah. okay. My so bad. pretty local to here. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. Cool. So yeah, you're you're in it. Yep. <laughs> nice. Okay. Well, I was hoping we would talk today about conservation, and in particular, marine reserves and marine protected areas. Actually, what's the difference between a marine reserve and a marine protected area? Yeah. Um, so a marine reserve in Oregon, they're defined as a, a place that has no uh, that. There's no allowable fishing or no extraction of any, um, uh, you know, any resources. Uh, any resources. Thank you, Allison. <laughs> um, and a marine protected area is the same, except that there is some limited fishing allowed. Like okay. in some of the marine reserves, there can there you're allowed to catch salmon 
by trolling and also um there's some allowable dungeness crab take um yeah so that's the difference between those okay and public perception of the marine reserves are they looked upon favorably as far as you can tell uh, are they threatened financially how do they look i would say that um with the public they're very there there's a lot of support there were um some studies in recent years that indicated i think in um in the valley in interior oregon there's about 80 or 90 percent and i can't i'm not sure about this but i think it's around 80 percent um support of the marine reserve program in general um on the coast it's a little lower i think it was around 70 percent but in general there's a lot of support for marine reserves and their function as places to um protect uh resources so that in areas outside of the reserves there can be um more fish allowed for you know economic um, benefit i think the marine reserves have proven themselves to be uh, a successful program that odfw oregon department of fish and wildlife um, runs Um, there's been a lot of great research which has informed um uh, which has informed fisheries, in fact, and fisheries management. It's just informed um, various elements of, of how climate change is impacting um, our coastline. For example, there's been some ocean acidification research done, and the reserves have been an important um, part of that research. Yeah. Um, I think there's been a lot of great outreach on why the marine reserves are beneficial, and there's been some, uh, I think, benefit from local community uh, to local communities in terms of ec- economically from them. Um, but I do think that um, in this last legislative cycle, we did see that um, there was uh, some concern around support for the marine reserves because we did uh, our group of conservation groups and others did want the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife to. Uh, rehire a community engagement person. And this person, uh, there had been that position at ODFW for the Marine Reserve Program in uh, years past, but during COVID, um, it was challenging to hire someone, obviously, uh, during that time. And then after that, they um, ODFW did have some support through, I think, um, interns and um, Sea Grant interns to help with outreach but we really wanted to see that part of the program bolstered because, again, connecting marine reserves to the community, to the fishing, to the fishing community, the the local communities is very important. Um, and uh, in terms of buy-in for the program, and also, um, you know, fishing industry has actually um, they've been contracted by the marine reserve program to help with some of their research. So there's some yeah. benefit to them too. I think what we saw this last legislative session is. Um, not that the program was um, uh, in danger of, of of going away completely, but um, there was a lot more interest um, with the sh- uh, with the money available for all kinds of programs in Oregon yeah. for less interest by um, ODFW leadership and by the governor's office, to be quite frank, in supporting uh, the program. So. Um, we feel that it's a very important program. We want to see it not only maintained, but we want to see it bolstered. And part of the reason for that is that at the end of the 10 years of uh, the first uh, of the, well, the first 10 years of the Marine Reserve Program, uh, the Oregon, uh, 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 Oregon State University was um, 
mandated to uh, review the marine reserve program. So at first, Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife wrote a synthesis report of their 10 years of what they've done in the in the, uh, in the reserves, what they've accomplished and what challenges they experienced. And then OSU um, was contracted to, to kind of review that and to see what in the program could be improved. And what they found is that really the, the program is doing well, but they could be doing better by having um, a stronger science program, another ecologist, and another um, economist in their program. And so we worked um, in a, uh, a collaboration with other NGOs to pull – and with uh, the Coastal Caucus, um, or the uh, legislative members that uh, have uh, seats that border the ocean here in Oregon uh, in the state legislature, to support a bill. It was uh, HB 2903 to basically um, uh, move forward with what was in the OSU assessment report. And unfortunately, that bill did not pass, even though it had all of the Coastal Caucus members supporting it. Um, and, and, you know, most of the Coastal Caucus is Republican. So it was really a bipartisan um, support behind this bill. And we were just disappointed that the, um, the bill didn't, didn't pass. And so we're going we're gonna to keep trying um, to ensure that this program is not only maintained, but is um, improved in the future and has the support it needs to get its work done. Allison, anecdotally, do you find support in your community in the Tillamook region for the Marine Reserves, or do you hear a lot of pushback? Yeah, that's, um, you know, that's a tricky question. Uh, like Joe said, there's a little bit lower support on the coast, and some of the reason for that is because we're living on the coast more closely tied um, to the economics of the Marine Reserves. I think that there's, you know, the science says that Marine Reserves do benefit fisheries. Um, and so a lot of that, like Joe said, is really important with the community engagement aspect and also reaching out to fishers. Um, some of the commercial fishers, as Joe also said, have, have been involved in the Marine Reserve program by taking out the surveyors. Um, and they're also uh, learning to some of the fishers, including one up in Garibaldi um, charters, are learning that uh, birders want to go out and look at seabirds on the water too, and that that could be another way of uh, getting out on the water and getting some money as well. Yeah, another income stream. And, yeah, and I just heard that some birders went out on the Garibaldi pelagic that they just had out there, a pelagic trip or going out to see birds offshore that you might not be able to see from the shore. Um, and some of the birders were saying that the charter was was talking about the work that they did with marine reserves so and that they were proud of that. So I think that you know there is increasing support, especially as time goes on. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of it is just kind of trying to change hearts and minds with um, statistics, but also with empathy and being able to understand where people are coming from and how they base their economic livelihoods. Yeah, yeah back to that local uh, communication specialist yeah, position. Totally. I mean, to see why that's super important. Mm -hmm. The Cape Perpetua Marine Reserve, not too far from here, is the largest marine reserve in Oregon. And as I'm sure you know, it hosts some of the most biologically diverse rocky intertidal habitats found anywhere in the Pacific Northwest. And not too far from the Perpetua Marine Reserve is the Cape Perpetua Scenic Area, where there is old-growth forest. And in that old-growth forest, the marbled merlet uses a habitat split strategy, nesting there in the woods, in the big trees, inland, and then foraging out in the nearshore waters along those marine reserves. I was hoping we could talk a little bit about this bird and why marine reserves are important for the marbled merlet. Yeah. Um, and just to clarify, the marine reserves are 
are, are mostly subtidal. Um, they extend from the, the shoreline out three miles, three nautical miles to the state boundary. So they're in, they're in state waters. Um, but um, yeah, getting to the merlet and um, is a great example of a bird that relies both on the marine environment for foraging in particular, um, and also it relies on coastal forests for nesting. And so uh, this bird has a very unique um, life history. They are a seabird. They're in the same family as things like puffins and um, and and auklets. Um, but they um, they uh, spend their uh, breeding season uh, finding nest sites in old growth or mature forests. I think trees that are over eighty years old, ideally. Um, in most cases, they will utilize and they need large branches that um, kind of stick out horizontally from the tree trunk. They have to be, I think, about 100 feet up. Yeah. And they need at least they, the tree trunk, uh, the tree branches that stick out horizontally need to be several inches in diameter and covered with moss because they don't build a nest. They just um, use these these sites to um, lay uh, a single egg on the uh, kind of on a, uh, in the moss and um, then they go out to sea and they uh, forage in the nearshore waters during the breeding season, primarily on small fish, forage fish, we call them. Things like um, sand lance and um, smelt, uh, anchovies and um, sardines, things like that. And they'll bring them in. They'll, they'll make multiple trips a day during the breeding season when the chick after the chicks hatch to feed the young. And so... Uh, yeah, you can see based on that life history how these birds need both healthy a marine habitat. They need waters that are productive that produce fish for them, uh, as well as uh, adequate forests uh, for them to, you know, and, and, and big trees for them to nest successfully. Um, some of the challenge they face around that um, on the marine side is that, as I think a lot of people on the coast know, we've been having more and more years of um, higher surface water temperatures. It's called uh, the warm blob, um, I think, from 2014 to 2016. Uh, yeah, there was a, a period of it. I think there's I think there's concern now of it again, potentially. But um, Pseudonychia bloom on the north coast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. So, so a lot of that, so that warming water ha- often prevents the these forage fish from showing up, um, and that will make the the merlets have to search further for um, for prey, and um, that can have an impact on their their success. Um, you know, if they if they can just go right off the shoreline and come in with some fish for their young, um, that's easy. If they have to fly halfway to California, that makes it a lot more challenging right. for both their viability and the chicks' survival. And then in the on the land side. Um, of course, I think a lot of people know that most of our old growth forests are have disappeared in Oregon. Um, the central coast of Oregon actually still has a fair amount of, uh, a fair amount of, especially in our federal forest land, have a fair amount of mature forests and some old growth that um, the merlets can still utilize. They're really um, sensitive to uh, any kind of uh, forest fragmentation because that allows predators like corvids things like crows and ravens and jays to come in and depredate their nests or eat the young at their nests 
Uh, it also allows a, a changes in the microclimate around the nests. Um, these birds like kind of, you know, wetter, dank conditions, and that changes when you open up the forest. So those are some of the challenges they face, and Allison may have other thoughts too on this. No, I think you pretty succinctly um, summed it up. Yes, it's a it's it is a great um, bird to really demonstrate the importance of connectivity of habitats, right? Um, both adjacent to the ocean as well as the old growth, but then also talking about habitat fragmentation, like Joe said. Um, just another thing I'll point out is that you know we have increasing corvids out here on the coast due to the fact that we have lots of roadways in from Portland, um, lots of campgrounds and human developments which have trash and, and things um, that subsidize predators or give them extra food to eat. So it's a, it's a problem that's um, tied into all of these other things too. Is this increasing number of predators that have always existed on the coast, but in much smaller numbers than they do today? I'll add larger, bigger fires, mm-hmm. less rain. Um, changing tree composition and uh, reduce moss abundance. We're talking about how they, they nest in the moss. Um, and then as we were talking about earlier, this increased edge habitat, um, pressures of development, uh, logging. Um, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the western snowy plover. Sure, I'll take that one. Um, Yes, that is my most consuming project of the summer in such a good way. Um, And as opposed to the murrelet, which is a bit of a bummer, like you just said, and hopefully they, you know, and I think that really important work that Portland Audubon and other conservation organizations are doing to hopefully help the marble murrelet. Um, the, the conservation um, actions have already happened with a snowy plover in a large part, and that has led to a rare conservation success story. Um, so my job is mostly to um, train community scientists or volunteers uh, to monitor, find and monitor all snowy plover nests in the north coast, which wow. is all of Tillamook and Clatsop counties. Yeah. And why that's particularly exciting is because um, the snowy plover population uh, or the snowy plover story in Oregon was um, pretty depressing for a while. There was less than 50 individuals left and all on the extreme south coast in the big Oregon Dunes National Recreation Area where there's big, wide open sandy habitat, which is what they really like and and essentially need um, to breed. And uh, when that happened, plovers were listed under the Endangered Species Act in 1994 and also listed in Oregon as well on their State Endangered Species Act. And that led to a bunch of immediate um, money um, to help protect these snowy plovers and effort and ability to have these um, legal conservation um, tools in their toolbox to use for snowy plovers. So pretty quickly down in the south coast where plovers were, um, they instituted a habitat restoration project, so basically trying to get rid of this invasive beach grass, right. um, which we all know if you've been out to the Oregon coast, you don't know you know it maybe, but it's there. It's the um, dune grass that creates these really, really tall dunes. Everywhere that dune grass exists, the plovers cannot exist. It's too dense. It changes the dune structure and formation, and it eliminates habitat for snowy plovers. Um, It has completely overtaken the Oregon coast. So when I say restoration, it can be as simple as bulldozing dunes down (laughs) and trying to uh, get rid of that European beach grass and create that wide open habitat for them again. Um, They also implemented research and monitoring to understand what plovers need, um, as well as some predator control measures uh, for site-specific 
where predators like corvids and coyotes and northern harriers in some cases are causing very specific problems on on site for plovers. Um, all of that led to uh, plovers numbers exploding <laughs> in a great way. Yeah. Um, down from that less than 50 individuals, we now counted about 590 individuals in this last um, breeding window survey we conducted in May and June with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife coordinates that um, throughout the entire Oregon coast. Um, and including increasing numbers on the North Coast. So um, the first nest on the North Coast was spotted at Nehalem Bay State Park um, in 2016. And ever since then, there has been an almost exponential increase of snowy plover nests. Um, so uh, in, uh, pretty quickly, Portland Audubon partnered with Oregon State Parks, who is the land manager of these areas, um, to try to find and monitor these nests and to try to basically keep up with the pace of these plovers increasing population, re-expanding and re-inhabiting um, historic parts of their range. They used to exist on all of our sandy beaches. So now this year we've counted 65 plover nests um, on the North Coast, which is an incredible increase from last year where we had 44 nests, which is an incredible increase from the year before where we had 36 nests and you get the picture. It's every year we're seeing more and more birds um, and that's really exciting. Um, yeah. Do you know, because the marbled merlet and the plover, western snowy plover, it sounds like were sort of dis um, taken under concern in the early 90s. What was it about that time that, do you know that sparked that concern? Yeah. So I think really, and Joe can probably speak to this more as well, um, it is, it's the fact that a uh, change like that and being able to list things under the Endangered Species Act takes a long time. Okay. And mm -hmm. there is the conservation kind of revolution back in the 1960s, which started the Endangered Species Act in the first place, as well as the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act and all of these other things. Um, it takes a lot to list a species. You have to do a lot of research. You have to really understand what's going on with the population before you um, take the pretty drastic measure of listing them under the Endangered Species Act. And so a lot of species were listed in the 80s and 90s. Um, and that's just a result of that. Basically, the 1960s started it off and um, lots of years of, of research and funding and efforts towards that measure. Yeah. Yeah. And um, just going back to the Marble Merlet for a little bit, mm -hmm. just to kind of mention how Portland Audubon has been engaged with the species. It's been many, many years we've been working on the protection of the species. It started back in the late 80s, and this is referring to what Allison is talking about with the uh, leading up to the um, listing of the species. Our organization at the time worked to put a petition together to, to list the species. And at the time, there were studies starting to emerge at how the species was in trouble. It was declining. And so that was, I think, the impetus for our organization to d write this petition. And so we were one of the first groups to kind of get it on the radar of the Fish and Wildlife Service to list it. Um, and then we did have to litigate, I think, in the early 80s to get it listed as uh, – it eventually became listed federally as threatened, and I think, in 1995. Um, more recently, in the past couple of years, we've worked – to get it listed from threatened to endangered at the state, the state endangered species act. And, um, that took, uh, a couple of years to do. It took, uh, um, some <laughs> litigation as well. Um, and the reason we did that is because, um, uh, in state forests, there's still a lot of concern about the management practices there in terms of helping the species in particular. Um, and what the state, uh, level and uh, um, move from threatened to endangered 
does it is in it uh, forces the um, the state to develop survival guidelines, and then within eighteen months of that, the survival guidelines being established, every a state agency that has land that has viable merlet nesting habitat has to develop a management plan, and those management plans actually were just um, adopted by the ODFW commission uh, several months ago. Um, we were a little concerned about them because some of those management plans we don't think have the the best uh, or don't have the uh, strong enough uh, teeth to them as we would like to see. But you know, the one, like I said before, we're going to keep working and working with the agencies in whatever ways we can to strengthen these plans and you know, hopefully in the long run, uh, help this species come come back um, from you know from danger of extinction. Yeah, and just to. Um just kind of do like a very quick like refresher into like what it takes to get something listed under the Endangered Species Act. Yeah, it requires yeah. scientific research and published studies that first, like Joe said, sound the alarm and say that, hey, something's happening here and this is scientifically defensible data. This is well-collected um, data that is, you know, that can be picked apart by peer reviewers within scientific journals. It takes that um, to first and foremost. It also takes um government funding and budgets. So oftentimes when we see a slashing of federal and state um, budgets for natural resource agencies like fish and wildlife agencies or U.S. Fish and Wildlife, um, it's hard to get anything done with that. And then a really, really important role is played by non-governmental organizations and um, within legal action, legislative action, within lobbying and policy. So it's an intersection of all of these people working together to try to save one thing, which is why it takes so long sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, and I think in the case of the merlet, um, the science is tricky because a lot of the um, work around uh, listing the species at the state level um, in particular is around the population um, uh, trend of the species. And in Oregon, it's actually going up. um, And the, the logic we use to list it is that there are so many other scientific studies that are indicating that over the longer term, the species has suffered a lot of habitat loss, which is still happening. Um, it's all, there's also been modeling studies that indicate that in certain portions of its range, it is likely to go and stick extinct mm-hmm. in next, uh, um, dec- in next uh, century. And then the other thing is that there's been recent research by Kim Nelson and Jim Rivers of part of the OSU. They did a, a long-term study that just wrapped up, which was, um, a, a huge effort where they were they uh, they captured merlets out on the water. Um, they would go out there in zodiac boats and capture the birds at night using a spotlighting technique, bring them onto a, a ship, and then plant uh, radio tags in them. And then they would find their nests by flying planes back and forth along the coast with crews on the ground to figure out where the nests were, because that's one of the biggest challenge with this yeah. bird is that the first nest um, wasn't found, I don't think, until the 70s in Oregon, not until, I think, 1990. Yeah. So very, very difficult birds to find their nests. And what they did find uh, by radio tagging uh, a bunch of birds is that during the years when the, when the ocean conditions were poor and there weren't many fish around, some of these birds were flying like down to California or up to Washington to find prey, and some of them were not even nesting. And so these survey, and so this links into the population estimate because um, the populations are estimated by doing at sea surveys, um, where you, you you do these transects at sea along the coastline, and you count all the merlets you can see, and you assume that the birds that are adjacent to 
the coastline are, you know, if you're doing a survey off of Newport, you're assuming those birds are Oregon birds. And so part of the Oregon population estimate. But what this newer study is finding is that you can't make that assumption. So we use that uncertainty in the science to justify kind of using a precautionary approach that if you don't have really good information on how these birds are doing, um, then we need to we need to fall back to um, you know protection rather than you know taking a risk of of not listing them. So that was kind of our main argument, and we were able to get that through. But it took <laughs> it took a lot of effort. Right. Uh, back to western snowy plovers. Yeah. Not just the European breech grass, but um, rising sea levels, mm-hmm. dogs, yep. <laughs> kites, and drones. I've read are all because once they uh, once the young leave the nest they're basically on their own is that well so the a little bit yeah so basically snowy plovers breeding biology is that they show up uh, or they're in oregon year-round so really we need these protected areas for snowy plovers year-round however most of our beach recreation as well as their predators breeding season so by predators um, corvids are their big ones so crows ravens um, as well as coyotes and a number of other smaller um, predators as well um, their breeding season is also within this uh, danger time of the year. So March 15th to September 15th um, is the really the breeding season for snowy plovers. And um, when that happens, they go to their breeding sites and they partner, they male and female mate, um, and they lay three eggs in the sand. That takes about a month to hatch. Um, and when those nest hatch, it takes uh, the mom leaves and she goes and finds another male to mate with. Yeah. And the dad will raise the chicks on his own. So, um, so basically it's the trying to get multiple nests out that season if they can, um, that would be the best case scenario to grow the snowy plover population. Um, and so when that happens, um, the dad will raise their chicks on their own. They can get out and move around from the nest bowl within four hours. So they're somewhat independent. They're able to, dad will warn them if a predator, um, a crow or raven or a kite or a person with their dog is walking by or a truck, dad will tell them to basically drop where you're standing because they look so much like sand that they're next to impossible to see. Yep. And so he will give them an alarm call um, and tell them to basically hit the deck um, and they hit the sand. And then they won't move. You could bend down and pick them up. Um, So that's a strategy that's great for visual predators. Um, So say like a crow or raven comes over or something, they can't see, they can just see sand. They don't see anything there because they blend in so well. It doesn't work as well um, for things like people accidentally trampling them. Yeah. Um, Same with their nests or have the same camouflage. Like they're designed to just look like open shells and they lay them in bits of debris and they're really, really hard to see. I've been monitoring plovers either piping or snowy plovers east coast version of piping plovers or of Mm. snowy plovers for 13 years and sometimes i'll be within six inches of a nest before i find it wow so they're extremely extremely camouflaged and so beachgoers can't be expected to know um you know to look for these nests because they're hard for trained observers to see um so it doesn't work as well for things that will move across their habitat people can and do step on chicks or drive them over with trucks um or they can fly a kite and like the parents are telling them to constantly hit the deck and it takes their energy and research over. The reason why we're concerned about flying objects like drones and kites is that there's no evolutionary corollary uh, for a uh, kite or um, sure. a drone except for a raptor, except for a species which might eat a, a parent or a chick. And so they treat them like predators. Um, similar to dogs, our big concern about dogs is not only 
Um, well, they they could act very well find a chick that had been foraging and hit the deck and then eat it because sure. that's what dogs do. Um, but they also mimic coyotes. And so they cause a really high stress level in plovers. Um, and they see them as this corollary to, to their natural predator, which is a coyote. Mm. Yeah. So there's a lot of dangers facing plovers out there. Um, and in response to that, there's some protection measures which the Endangered Species Act has afforded us um, for, for kind of tools for that. So the biggest one is the creation of snowy plover management areas where we like to shortcut them into SPMAs. Um, these are areas of added protection for snowy plovers um, on some of our beaches in the habitats where they're most likely to be. So that's river inlets, basically. They really like river inlets because it keeps down that European beach grass because they're so dynamic in winter storms. And so they take down that beach grass naturally. Um, so wherever there's river inlets, um, there's usually a snowy plover management area. It's not exclusively true, but mostly. Um, and those are areas with signage um, and they have additional recreation restrictions. So the people uh, are not supposed to walk in dry sand, um, which is anywhere where the plovers can nest or have their chicks. They were supposed to uh, stay restricted to the wet sand or the most recent tide was. And they're not allowed to bring um, dogs or fly kites as well. Um, and uh, obviously drive trucks or ATVs and things like that, too. Yeah. Are there a lot of beaches left where you can drive trucks in Oregon? There's a few, and there's a few where people still do it, even if they're oh. not technically allowed to. Uh, but yeah, okay. we have um, one of our plover sites up in the Columbia River, which is our most productive snowy plover site on the north coast or anywhere north of Coos County, really. Um, and that site has beach driving up into the, up until the snowy plover management area. And so it's a constant um, education campaign to try to convince drivers not to drive past that boundary. Is it marked well? It is, but the problem with, and the constant problem with snowy plover signs um, is that we put up lots of signage. The beach rangers put up signage. What they do all season long, Oregon State Parks has these um, rangers, which their job is beach ranger. And so their job is to take care of anything that happens on that beach. Yeah. And that includes putting up and taking down signage. And let me tell you, we have constant in-season communication where we text yeah. them, we call them, we have a data platform that they use to tell them, hey, your sign got washed out again. Yeah. Because tides are dynamic here. And so you can either put them really high up into the dune lines and so the tide won't take them, but then it also means people won't see them. Um, or you can put them down lower into the tide line and then it means that they're just going to get washed away by the next high tide. So it's kind of a constant battle. So yeah. yeah, signage, but I think in signage is super important, but it has to be combined with an education campaign, um, to talk to people about it. And I think that's where, um, Audubon, uh, is unique, um, uh, compared to an agency because we have a pretty, um, <clears throat> Um, broad program for uh, education. And so part of it is the community science um, we do. So for Allison's program with the plovers, we have a plover patrol, we call it. And so, and she can talk at length about it, but we basically um, get volunteers to help monitor the plovers. And with plovers, it's a very intensive program because if we, if volunteers want to monitor their nests, since they're an endangered species, they have to get uh, a pretty rigorous training and get on a sub per minute to do it. So, um, but it's, it's great because um, the agencies are, are capacity challenged. Um, and I think what the volunteers can bring is helping with that capacity, helping doing the monitoring that the agencies need to do in order to meet their kind of goals uh, for, for recovering the species. Um, but it also creates an opportunity to, build stewardship um, and uh, at the on the coast and get volunteers that 
We'll spread the message of why plovers are important and why we should care about them. And we also do, in addition to the community science, we also do a number of um, outreach events, things like interpretive walks where the public can come and check out, see where the plovers are, get a chance to look at them and learn about their life history and best practices to minimize disturbance to them. And so uh, I think that's a really important part of our program as well. Um, Absolutely. And and education, this upcoming year, we're going to start going into schools um, and cool. use the tried and true strategy with beach. This this stra- this challenge is not unique um, with plovers. There's beach nesting birds or what they call birds that nest directly on the sand and come into direct conflict with people are happening on pretty much everywhere. There's sandy beaches yeah. in, the, in the country. And so there's lots of strategies that people have employed across the country um, to figure out how to deal with this. And one of the more effective strategies we're going to try here is um, using the children to teach or shame, depending on how you look at it, their parents um, into doing the right thing. And so yeah. it's going in and talking to the kids and getting them to create um, plover signs and art and learn about plovers um, and to start caring about these resources that are in their own backyard and on their own beaches. And so we're starting that strategy next year, too, um, and increasing our formal education as well as what Joe said, their informal education of being able to talk to people. And our data collection, our um, volunteers also, our plover patrol program also helps to inform um, those beach rangers, not only by telling them, hey, your signs are down <laughs> again, sure. which is unfortunately most of what they hear from us, um, but also where we collect data on how many infractions or how many people we see violating the rules um, out there, um, how many people we've spoken to about it, um, and also how many people are just using the beaches on different days. And so our hope is that our data that we collect through that um, is in real time and that they can see when there's issues and perhaps adjust their schedules and patrols based on that information. Right. Yeah, I also want to call out that um, it's a, we partner with a lot of different groups on the coast, and you know, without that partnership, um, we couldn't do the work we we need to do. And so, those are vital. And so, you know, Audubon Lincoln City is a great partner, as well as um, Webs. Uh, they're the friends group at Neat Tarts um, Bay, and um, there's there's many other groups. So those Morgan are just. Shore. Oregon Shores, a conservation coalition. These are all groups that we work closely with um, to to kind of collectively get this work done. So I just want to make sure we, we call that out, um, that, you know, this is a team effort. Oregon Shores does the beach mile, right? Mm-hmm. Do. do you guys have access to that data? Or do they share it or is that proprietary? Or? Um, we they, they do share um, informally. I mean, we could probably request some kind of data access um, if we had a particular need to. And we would similarly share our data if anyone is interested or wants to see how our plovers are doing on our beaches. Um, but uh, in general, they, they do share the um, spread like they've we've helped um, send them volunteers from some of our volunteers. Like, what else can I do while I'm out here on the nice. beach? We've sent them some. They've sent us some where people are like, what are these signs about? And they've turned into our plover volunteers as well. So we definitely share a community science oriented um, volunteer base. That's wonderful. Yeah. The last bird I want to talk about today is the black oyster catcher. Mm-hmm. Less than 11,000 global population. Uh, they have a low reproductive rate. Um and they rely on the rocky intertidal habitats. I know that Portland Audubon is doing some black oyster catcher work. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. I can start a little bit. Um, so yeah, back in, I think it was 2015, we kind of reinvigorated a, a black oyster catcher monitoring program in Oregon. Uh, before that, USGS um, had done uh, some monitoring with some volunteers back in the mid-2000s. And... Um, we wanted to um, uh, bring that back because the bird is, uh, as you mentioned, uh, 
low population number. It's not an endangered species, but it's a species of concern, including in the Oregon's uh, nearshore strategy. It's considered a strategy species or a species of uh, concern in Oregon. And it's also a species that's really great for volunteers, uh, community scientists to monitor because it's very easy to identify. And during the, the breeding season and just before they start breeding during the courtship, they're very obvious. Like they fly around as people that live in the coast know. They're these big crow-sized black birds with a long orange beak and pink legs that are very boisterous and noisy. And so they're a very um, conspicuous bird, easy to monitor. Um, and they are kind of the, it sounds kind of funny, but they're the top predator in the intertidal area because they you know, rely on shellfish primarily to eat. And they're really dependent on the intertidal. If the intertidal uh, uh, zone is not doing well, then it's likely that the oyster catchers will um, you know, not do as well. So they're a great um, indicator species of the intertidal health. And um, so we started monitoring them back in 2015 again. And our first effort was to understand what their population size was in Oregon because there had been an estimate about 10 years earlier, and we wanted to check and see how that um, was holding up. So we, we had people go out all over the coast um, in rocky habitat areas where they, they like to nest. And we came up with an estimate of about five to 600 oyster catchers that are likely breeders um, in, in Oregon, which is a small number, but it seemed to be pretty stable because we did this estimate over several years. Um, and then we switched to looking at nest survivorship of the birds, so similar to what Allison does with the, um, the plovers, except uh, um, unlike the plovers, um, which nest on the sandy dune habitat, the oyster catchers are in the rocky habitat, like you, like you mentioned, Paul. And... Um, we started looking at uh, their survivorship, um, looking at nest uh, success of these birds. And um, at the same time, there started to be a process in Oregon to uh, revamp Oregon's Rocky Habitat Management Plan, which had, was originally written in 1994. And because Oregon has such great, unique Rocky Habitat, uh, uh, coastal Rocky Habitat, that's very vital for um for in uh, intertidal animals, it's also really important in the intertidal zone for um, nurseries, for for rockfish, for, um, for, um, for for the early part of their life stage before they can move out further to sea. And those are, of course, very commercially important as well, of uh, species of fish. Um, they went out to re... Uh, agencies in Oregon went out to uh, revamp this management plan. And we were part of that process um, to try to you know, at the policy level to get stronger protections in the plan. Because as you can imagine, back in the early 90s, climate change wasn't a big part of the discussion in the plan. So we tried to get language back in there to, for those kinds of uh, concerns and protections. And then as a second part to the Rocky Habitat Management Plan, after the plan got through the policy stage, was they opened it up for the public to nominate sites along the coast for stronger protections. And in Oregon, we have three types of protections associated with rocky habitat areas. We have uh, marine gardens or marine education areas. So in a good example of that is Haystack Rock, where you have this intertidal zone, this large rock that um, is important for wildlife, but is also a place to educate the public on, on the benefits of our intertidal habitats. And um, another type of uh, designation is a marine research area where researchers can um, do uh, work uh, on the intertidal zone and have access to, um, you know, getting the proper permits to do, you know, intensive studies. And then there are marine conservation areas, which um, 
offer additional protection to uh, uh, the, the kind of the baseline rules for harvesting things like shellfish and marine plants. Um, so uh, Portland Audubon worked, we didn't nominate any sites, but we worked with a lot of coastal groups to help collectively to nominate sites. So uh, for example, Audubon Lincoln City nominated Cape uh, well, Cape Lookout um, and and uh, Cape Foulweather as marine conservation areas. Um, and there are, I think there were so basically what it boiled down to after several years of a long process um, and these sites being uh, uh, nominated for designation, we were actually really successful and eight sites were nominated for protection, including those two by Audubon Lincoln City. And so the next step in this is getting the resources for the agencies and also hopefully a small grants program so that we can really implement these sites successfully. Because right now we have the designations, but we really want to make sure that they just aren't like a paper park, that they right. they have the proper um, enforcement um, and also stewardship by volunteer groups to really educate and implement these sites. Um, so, sorry, I got kind of on a tangent with That's the good. Rocky Habitat areas, but, yeah. but the oyster catchers were kind of really the species that was the, um, the flagship species to help us um, get people inspired about rock, rocky habitats. So I think it's another example of how, you know, you can engage birders and other people on an iconic species to get them involved in a conservation initiative. Yeah, and, and collect data that is really important to help inform that information as well. So the volunteers for the Black Oyster Catcher Community Science Program, you know, collect data similar to Snowy Plovers, trying to find every oyster catcher um, pair with a nest that they can see, <laughs> because a lot of the oyster catchers annoyingly nest on the other side of the whatever rock you're looking at, yeah. but the ones that are viewable. Um, and they also collect data on things that might impact the oyster catchers as well. So that's human disturbance is a big part of it. So again, drones come into that as well. Um, as Joe said, these oyster catchers are super noisy. They're very territorial and defensive. Um, and that's towards anything that comes into their turf, um, including drones. So they'll spend a lot of time um, chasing off drones and potentially even getting injured from them as well. Um, and so, you know, they collect data on things that like that, that they see if oyster catchers are disturbed by people walking around or by drones or by, um, anything else like that, dogs climbing up on the rocks. Um, and they'll also collect data on any predator impacts and things like that as well. And we have used that data to make, um, some arguments and be able to make the point that, um, we need these rocky habitat protections. So it's these community science volunteers are collecting vital data for us that the, uh, like we said earlier, the agency couldn't do alone. <laughs> Yeah, and we also have published, um, you know, getting um, talking about the science some more with oyster catchers. Sure. We published that estimate for the population, uh, the population estimate for Oregon in a you know a peer-reviewed journal, and then now we're working on we're working with California Audubon and um, on a region-wide analysis of uh, how is the nesting success across the whole region of California and Oregon impacted by all of those stressors we've talked about by increasing presence of people and dogs and um, and also increasing predators and also changing ocean conditions. Uh, and so uh, we're just starting the analysis on that uh, right now. We were, we're working with the science team at National Audubon and a, and a few other collaborators. But without all that data being collected by volunteers from California to Oregon, hundreds of people engaged, we, we couldn't do that kind of science. That's great. Are there drone restrictions in place or currently in place? And is Portland Audubon working on some of that? That's a, increasingly a, an issue. 
Yeah. So um, right now there is a uh, process going on with the Oregon uh, State Parks um, Department on um, they were mandated a couple legislative sessions ago through a bill that got passed to develop drone takeoff and landing rules in state parks and also on the ocean shoreline, which Oregon State Parks is um, uh, admit they are in charge of um, the management of those shoreline habitats. And so, as we know, in Oregon, shoreline habitats have are really important in particular for birds. Uh, over a million nesting seabirds nest on our coast. We've got endangered species like plovers and oyster catchers as well. So um, it, we are really concerned about the impact of drones. And we were happy to see that legislation get passed. Um, and uh, we have been working with parks right now as part of a work group, which they've invited um, conservation community, including myself and um, a representative from Oregon Shores Conservation Coalition as well. Um, and also the agencies, there's a Fish and Wildlife representative and an ODFW representative kind of speaking on behalf of wildlife. And as well on the work group, there's are, are some drone advocates um, and parks, of course, parks employees. So we're kind of working on the criteria of where would it be okay in Oregon State Parks and on the ocean shore to allow drones all the time? Where would it be okay to allow them some of the time? And where would it, where is it not okay to allow them any time? And um, right now, uh, Oregon State Parks is using that criteria that we've developed to to basically map every single park. There's over 200 parks uh, across the state um, and every single shoreline area to you know, basically they have red for no drones, <laughs> yellow for conditional use of drones, and green for drones are okay. And so we are, you know, as a conservation group, we're very concerned. We, our, our constituency, our supporters, we have over 12,000 members, are very concerned about drones. Uh, and so we want to see most, we want to see all the areas that have any importance for wildlife and for birds, uh, in particular nesting birds, to be uh, no, no drone areas. Um and part of that is because parks can only control where drones take off and land. They can't control when they're in the air. That's FAAA. That's the FAA, I should say. Wow. And um, so if you are allowed to take off a drone in one area, um, it's hard to regulate where the drones are moving. And as, as most people know, drones can go pretty widely. So that's a, a strong concern of ours. So anyway, we're working with parks, and that should be in the next by, – or by next spring, we'll have – uh, there should be um, new regs uh, on drones and on state park lands. Yeah, and I just want to um, also say that drones are currently not allowed um, uh, to land on any of the Oregon Islands National Wildlife Refuge. So that's sure. any offshore rock. And they're also not allowed to harass birds. But again, it's super hard enforcement-wise <laughs> to find out where that drone came from. Um, and so that's where the takeoff and landings within the adjacent Oregon state parks will do a really uh, – good service hopefully that works yeah i was having coffee and watching a drone get harassed by or a drone harassing however you want to frame it seagulls mm -hmm. it was just bizarre because they just two or three seagulls just kind of kept going at it and clearly they were stressed and yeah. mm -hmm. i couldn't tell who was flying it where it was coming from <laughs> yeah yeah birds perceive drones often as another as a predator they think they're i'm not sure what they think they are but they they definitely perceive them as a threat and so um, we, Alice and I regularly get calls or emails from our volunteers across the coast with all reports of, 
um, these uh, um, drone incidents. And, you know, of course, we tell the agencies and, you know, Allison's worked hard um, with the agencies to get temporary signage in places that we haven't been able to get that before. So that's a, a, a step. Um, but it's a, yeah, it's a continuing challenge that we're, you know, we'll be working on forever probably. <laughs> yeah. And another place wow. where community science volunteers really, uh, play an important role is that they often are like, we cannot be everywhere at once. The agency can't reasonably be everywhere at once, nor can the beach rangers, which have the actual enforcement ability. Um, but we can provide non-enforcement education, um, to people as well. And just being able to talk to people, um, and often it's very proactive. People often come to us and say, what are you looking at what are you doing? And right. so we try to train uh, our community scientists to, to inject, um, some conservation messaging into every conversation that they have. So I think um, one, a message for the people listening out there um, to the podcast is that we would definitely uh, encourage people to, to look at signage. You know, I know it's easy when you go to the beach to kind of ignore the signs or kind of walk by them quickly, but definitely look at the signage and it'll tell you what the, the regulations are in that area and, and really heed them because they're, they're done not to have, you know, for you not to have uh, less fun, but they're done to protect um, our wildlife and our natural resources. And there's plenty of other areas where you can go um, and sometimes in the same area, you know, for example, with, uh, um, you know, keeping your dogs away from the snowy plover management areas, you can walk on the other side of the beach and you can still have your dogs um, um, on leash. So, um, so just be just try to use those best best practices to minimize your impact and you can still have lots of fun. Before you guys go, I want to talk a little bit about wind farms and just see where you're at on that and when what's currently being discussed. I know it's going to be an increasingly big topic uh, for birds and wildlife and I'd like to get somebody on to talk about it who specializes in this. But where are we at on actually let me read something from Nature that was published last year. This is on a long-term study of wind farms in India. Quote, the fatalities due to direct collision with the rotor blades of a wind turbine, the displacements or avoidance of animals due to the construction process and the noise generated by the wind turbines, the persistence of disturbance and habitat loss caused by construction of wind farms and their associated infrastructure are all considered to have a negative impact on wildlife. What a tricky situation. Um, sustainable energy threats to animals and uh, habitat. What, what do you guys think about this? Yeah, um, I could start. Um, so for in Oregon, there's a big initiative now for floating offshore wind uh, off of our coasts. And um, we've been engaged with a number of other groups, including Calmeopsis Audubon, which are located down in Port Orford, as well as American Bird Conservancy and um, Oceana, and Surfrider and a number of other groups that are really concerned about the wind. Uh, and our main concern is, well, first of all, I should say that we are supportive of offshore wind power in, in, in general, because we know that we are living in a time, <laughs> as I know from the heat in Portland <laughs> today in this past week. 108, right? Yeah, yeah. It's very, so we're, we're definitely in a time where we need to act and we need to act fast to, um, to get a handle on, um, you know, reducing our fossil fuels, as everybody knows, and, and carbon so we're supportive of it, but at the same time, we are really concerned as, you know, we we're just mentioning Paul that there could be, you know, if we're not, if it's not done carefully, there could be, um, you know, some major impacts to birds and marine mammals and, and, and even fish as well. And so, uh, the other concern we have with floating offshore wind is that it's a relatively untested technology. There's, 
uh, a couple places in the world, I think mostly in Europe, where it's being used at a very kind of um, uh, uh, um, small level, mostly testing level at this point. Um, so, and in the uh, cal- off the coast of Oregon, um, we have the California Current, which is a very productive productive area for for um, for fish and for marine wildlife. And it's also a very kind of rough area to place uh, this this kind of untested technology. So, we just want to make sure it's done right, and um, we. The Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, which is the federal agency that um, is uh, responsible for, you know, working with developers uh, to, you know, for any kind of extraction activities off of our in our in our uh, waters. Um, uh, we've been working with them for the past couple of years, um, providing our input on where would be the best places to not have wind turbines based on the best available science. And um, we wrote a long letter, a, a bunch of conservation groups to them about a year ago. And um, at the time, they had these areas called call areas off the coast, which are the areas that they had designated for um, potentially developing uh, wind energy. And so we looked at those call areas and we worked with scientists, we worked with other conservation groups to try to hone down where are the areas in these call areas that would be have the most the have the, the minimal impact on um, uh, you know dynamic soaring birds and marine mammals and and uh, and the fisheries as well because uh, the fisheries in particular uh, fishing groups are very very concerned commercial fishers and recreational fishers are very very concerned as well because with floating offshore wind you have these cables and many many miles of cables that would need to secure these arrays of um, fish of, of uh, wind turbines to the seabed. And so in those areas, it would be very tricky to, to fish. Um, and so this is an area where we have really aligned really well with the fishing industry um, in terms of our concerns. And so in any case, um, just this past week, the BOEM came back out with their next phase of their processes, which was uh, they have narrowed down within the call areas, these places called wind energy areas, where they're, they've actually gotten interest from developers to, you know, potentially um, start the the process of developing sites out there. And we were happy to see, now I haven't read the full report, but I saw a map of the call areas, the existing call areas, and where the wind energy areas are going to be. And I was happy to see at first glance that the wind energy areas are further away from the coastline. That was one of our main concerns because a lot of the rocky reef habitat under subtitle habitat was closer into shoreline. And that's where it is very productive for fish and for wildlife. So it looks like they've heated that to some extent, but we'll really need to look at this report. I literally just got it in my mailbox, I think, yesterday or the day before. So we really need to look at it in detail. And I've already got a call scheduled with um, their avian biologist um, at BOEM, who um, was very proactive in reaching out to us. Um, so kudos to them on that. Um, but yeah, we'll um, we'll work with them. And you know, if there's any remaining concerns about uh, impacts to wildlife, we'll definitely make that known. And um, hopefully um, we'll end with a process where if there is wind develop, development, uh, offshore wind development happening in Oregon, it'll be in the places that are um, going to be the best, the, the minimal impact to wildlife and to the fishery fishery economy. Yeah, to add 
just to add a couple points onto that is that that long process that Joe is describing about finding the best possible areas to put them is called sighting. So if you're ever looking and like reading a news story about this or something like that, um, it, and the other thing is that this is all can be very confusing. Um, it's tough because, you know, it's a tricky topic. We obviously do, like Joe said, need to need to get out of the <laughs> um, carbon emissions game. And, uh, you know, increasing carbon emissions is, is extremely dangerous for wildlife, too. And so that kind of gotcha um, method that's used um, by a lot of agencies to be like, well, this is dangerous for wildlife and there are scientific studies to prove it. And how can you be supportive of it? It's important to remember that it's not a zero sum game like the alternative is even worse. Right. Um, and so it is really important. And so that's where it comes down to the best available science um, citing and also an, another important um, call for science communication, being able to translate this really important science into um, to, to the general public and to try to get general support for it. Um, as well as try to get support um, on an activist level. And so if you want to get involved or understand the science or see where you can participate in this, um, you know, I would recommend joining our Portland Audubon mailing list. And we do a lot of action alerts um, that talk about things like that when opportunities for public comment come up um, based on what we've said. We will link that in the show notes, most definitely. Yeah, sometimes I think it's going to take nothing short of Godzilla emerging from the ocean (laughs) uh, to believe climate change is happening in here, but... (laughs) Until you then, never know. <laughs> I know. Um, yeah. Is there anything else? This has been wonderful. Is there anything else either of you want to add, plug, discuss, um, or send listeners away with? I think we've covered mm-hmm. some pretty great topics. But um, yeah, and in terms of um, for plugging some of our things, so if you are curious, right now we are at the end of our field season for both black oyster catchers and snowy plovers. So at the end of the data collection phase, so all these birds are sort of wrapping up um, their nesting and they're starting to, um, in the best case scenario, fledge young or have their young are able to free fly. So we're going to collect all of this data and compile it together into a, um, an annual report for both of these species, the black oyster catchers and the snowy plovers. Um, and that will be available on our um, community science website, our Portland Audubon Community Science website, as well as information on how to sign up for next year if you're interested in coming out um, to learn how to monitor these birds for yourself um, or also to come out on some of our interpretive walks too. So it's kind of wrapping up for the season, but keep an eye out for results and follow early next winter on to become involved for next year. Nice. Yeah, and uh, th- so just uh, why don't you tell everybody the uh, the timeline for the different community science projects we have on the coast, so the plovers and oyster catchers in the Merlette. Yeah, so um, the snowy plovers is our longest season um, because they – uh, nest for a long time. They try to start in, in mid-March and they go through mid-September. And so um, we generally do training for community science volunteers in the March timeframe. So we start publicizing those event dates and areas where we go to um, to do that training in um, January, February timeframe. Our Black Oyster Catcher project is a little bit later. Um, we do those in late April or early May, the trainings for it, and to uh, coincide with the beginning of their nesting season, which is about in mid-May and runs through mid-August. Um, in our Marble Mirrorlet survey, we do a community science. It's such a fun event um, down yeah. at Cape Perpetua, and that's a one day. Um, it can be overnight, um, or you can come in early, early in the morning. Um, basically, we do a talk overnight um, with our partners at Oregon State University and Cape Perpetua Collaborative and others, um, and a talk about the Marble Mirrorlets. And then we uh, and everyone kind of gathers into a big room and learns a lot about the latest science and status of Marble Mirrorlets, and see some really cool videos and things like that as well. Um, and then the next morning at literally before dawn, so at that time of year, it's like 
1130 in the morning. Um, we get up and go out to different sites. We have a group campsite at Cape Perpetua Campground, um, and we count um, with a, with researchers um, who are doing this all summer long. We count uh, marble mirrorlets flying over what we call detections, and mm-hmm. it's a really fun event. You only have to get up early once, as opposed to the researchers who get up early every day, um, and it is so worth it. It's a really cool experience, and camping out overnight if you'd like to at Cape Perpetua Campground. That's in uh, mid to late July every year. And again, all three of those dates are listed on our Portland Audubon events page as well as on our community science page. Sweet. And I'm just going to pitch if Portland Audubon ever wants to start a reality show called Plover Patrol, <laughs> I think we might have some gold. I think so too. It's like a West Coast Jersey Shore yeah. sort of right. yeah. Yeah, yeah. But with plovers. We could mix it with beach rangers. Yeah. <laughs> we actually do have a lot of like inner plover drama because a lot of these birds have bands, color bands on them. Sure. And so that marks them as individuals. And so we're like, oh, did you see that orange, red, orange, green was nesting with blue, lime, Ooh. yellow? And then instead of with blue, lime, yellow, it went over Uh-oh. to green, orange, green. And like, <laughs> so we have a lot of that like little drama amongst plovers. So I think it would be a good uh, yeah, fodder no. for reality shows. It's very dramatic out there. Yeah. And we want to keep it fun. So yeah. it's not all grim <laughs> in the environmental scene. Well, thank you so much. Truly yeah. awesome. Yes. Thank you so much, Paul. Thanks for having us. All right. Thanks again to Joe and Allison for coming up to the studio and having that nice chat. And now a word from Nissa Parker, Digital Communications Coordinator for the Audubon Society of Lincoln City. So I just have a little bit of news from our chapter this month, and I guess I'll start with an Osprey update. As you may know, we've been monitoring 13 Osprey nests around our area since February. And as of late August, the fledglings are doing really well. We've been watching them become strong flyers and successful hunters with the help of their parents, and while we'll be sad to see them go off on their winter migration, we know it'll only be a few short months until we see them again. On the conservation front, I talked about the Western Oregon State Forest Habitat Conservation Plan in our first couple of episodes, and the Oregon Board of Forestry is now finalizing a habitat conservation plan that will affect the future of Oregon's forests for generations to come. We've been fighting hard against the interests of the timber industry, and we're currently collaborating with several other conservation organizations on a campaign to support a strong habitat conservation plan that protects wildlife, clean drinking water, and public land access. The campaign is called Stantall Oregon, and you can visit www.stantalloregon.org if you want to let your elected officials know that you support a habitat conservation plan that will keep our iconic forests healthy. We'll have that link in our show notes. Now on to events. Our Reserve Inspiration art exhibit that features local artists showing work inspired by Oregon's marine reserves is up at Coos Art Museum in Coos Bay through September 22nd. So make sure you check that out if you're in the area. We have two bird walks coming up in September on Friday the 8th and Saturday the 9th. The first one starts at 9 a.m. at Cutler City Open Space, where we'll look for early fall migrants, then move on to Siletz Bay to watch for migrating shorebirds, wrapping up by 11 a.m., The second on Saturday is up near Tillamook at Bay Ocean Spit, which is a really interesting habitat that attracts more than 230 bird species. This walk starts an hour later to accommodate the tides, so we'll meet at 10 a.m. and be finished by 12 p.m. All of our bird walks are always free, family-friendly, and open to the public. See the calendar link in our show notes for more information, and we hope to see you there. That's all for this month. We'll continue working together for birds and nature, and we hope you'll join us. All right, well, that concludes episode four of the Oregon Coast BirdCast. Thanks again to Joe Liebeseit and Allison Anholt for coming up to the studio. Thank you as well, Nissa Parker, for stopping by and giving us those updates. 
Thank you to Oregon Coast Community College for providing the studio space and the technology to make this happen, and to Audubon Society of Lincoln City for your support as well. If anybody has any questions, episode suggestions, or would like to follow up on anything you heard today or in past episodes, feel free to email us at birdcast at lincolncityaudubon.org. You can also head over to Instagram. Our handle is Oregon Coast Birdcast. And as always, please remember to follow, rate, or share this episode wherever you podcast. Take care and have a great day, and we'll see you next time.